transmitting from the heart of Times Square on 99.5 FM, WBAI New York, Pacifica Radio for the Tri-State Area. This is Trump Watch, a weekly series investigating the actions of and reactions to President Donald J. Trump and his administration. I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Conrad Tokyo, Sparrow, Pistachio, Justin. My family's history is so closely intertwined with Johnstown. My, my immigrant ancestors, when they came here, they started a tailoring shop, and the name of that tailoring shop was Glosser Brothers. And it soon became Glosser Brothers Department Store right there on Central Park. And it broke my heart to see what happened to Johnstown when the steel mill shut down and the jobs left and the industry died and they went to foreign countries. How many of you here know somebody or may be somebody whose own personal dreams were shattered because our politicians let Johnstown down? Now, somewhere out in some other country, there's somebody else who got that factory or got that job or got that order because Johnstown didn't get it. The world still needs steel, but that steel is being produced somewhere else because some politician in Washington, D.C. got a little bit of graft and decided to look the other way when they started dumping the products into your community. That was senior advisor to President Trump, Stephen Miller, speaking at a Trump campaign rally in Johnstown, Pennsylvania in October of 2016. Footage courtesy of the Donald Trump TV YouTube channel. Hello and welcome to Trump Watch. You may be wondering why it was the voice of Mr. Miller heard at the top of this program instead of that of Michael Cohen, President Trump's one-time fixer and personal lawyer who pleaded guilty to breaking campaign finance laws on Tuesday in federal district court in Manhattan, saying he committed them at the direction of President Trump, Paul Manafort, the one-time Trump campaign chairman who was convicted Tuesday of five counts of tax fraud, two counts of bank fraud, and one count of failure to disclose a foreign bank account, as reported in the New York Times, or even perhaps the president himself attempting to distance himself from both men. Although there are important questions at stake in the cloud of legal activity enveloping President Trump that we will get to Here at Trump Watch, our primary focus has always been to look at the ways this administration is changing our daily lives. So today, we won't be talking about Cohen or Manafort or Putin or Roger Stone. Instead, we'll be focusing on one area of policy where Donald Trump has been making significant shifts away from the status quo, and that is immigration. Which brings us back to Stephen Miller. As you may know, Miller has been a chief architect for the Trump administration immigration policies, such as the travel ban restricting legal immigration from five majority Muslim nations, North Korea and Venezuela, in its current form as allowed by the Supreme Court, and a new plan to make it more difficult for legal immigrants who have used certain welfare programs, including Obamacare, children's health insurance and food stamps, to obtain citizenship or green cards, as reported by NBC News. He also helped to craft a bill last summer, along with then-White House Chief Strategist Steve Bannon and a pair of Senate Republicans, that would have cut the number of legal immigrants accepted each year into the U.S. in half from 1 million immigrants annually to 500,000, as reported by Politico. So considering all of this, should the fact that Miller is himself a fourth-generation immigrant 
matter. There's one person who believes that it should. He's Stephen Miller's uncle, Dr. David S. Glosser. We spoke yesterday. Joining me now is Dr. David S. Glosser, a retired neuropsychologist and former member of the neurology faculty of Boston University School of Medicine and Jefferson Medical College. Dr. Glosser wrote the August 13th Politico op-ed, Stephen Miller is an immigration hypocrite. I know because I'm his uncle. Hello, Dr. Glosser. Welcome to Trump Watch. Thanks so much for joining me. Jesse, I'm glad we could get the time to talk. You write in your August 13th Politico article, quote, I have watched with dismay and increasing horror as my nephew, an educated man who is well aware of his heritage, has become the architect of immigration policies that repudiate the very foundation of our family's life in this country. How do you believe Stephen Miller, senior advisor to President Trump, is repudiating the foundation of your family's story in America, as you say, with the administration's policies? Well, as you may have uh, doubtless read in the, uh, the Politico essay that I composed, our family is a family of refugees. Uh, my, uh, my great-grandfather, uh, his name was Wolf Leib Glaser, and he lived uh, with his uh, with his uh, large family in a, in a little dirt floor shack in what is now the uh, uh, country of Belarus in a village called Antipol. Uh, this was roughly at the in the late 1800s, early 1900s, a period of increasing uh, uh, violence toward Jews in that region of the Russian Empire, where, uh, where there was organized uh, organized violence on the part of the Tsar. There was uh, widespread public sentiments, uh, anti-Jewish sentiments stirred up by the uh, uh, by the uh, by the government, and organized pogroms in which uh, murders, mutilations, and destruction took place on a regular basis throughout the what was then called the Pale of Settlement. The, uh, the way uh, the way our family ultimately made its decision to, to leave was a combination of uh, being terrorized and impoverished. Uh, the uh, the the, uh, the Tsarist army at the time was an organ, of course, an organ of their government, and one of their policies was to uh, to uh, help eradicate their so-called Jewish problem um, by kidnapping uh, Jewish male children uh, from childhood as young as eight or nine years old, inserting the way for lifelong virtual slave labor as uh, conscripts of the Tsarist army as child soldiers and laborers which was a virtual death sentence for these kids. Uh, in the face of all those pressures, uh, our families, as well as well, lots of others, millions of others, felt that there was no future for them in that part of Europe. And they began to migrate out. And uh, my great-grandfather, Wolf Leib, was able to scratch up enough money to get a steerage ticket uh, to the United States. And, uh, and what years we... are we talking about here? Where, not just where, where Leib sure. left, but where the family left uh, Belarus? The family left the village of Antipol. Wolf Leib left uh, the village of Antipol in 1903. He landed in New York with, uh, with eight bucks in his pocket. Didn't speak a word of English, had no formal secular education whatsoever. He could speak, <clears throat> he could speak uh, Russian and Polish in the uh, Jewish transnational language of Europe, uh, Yiddish. Uh, and uh, he was looking for... Uh, was looking to establish a foothold in the United States, and he did so. 
uh, an older brother of his had come over first, and uh, they were eventually uh, they met up and they were doing a combination of sweatshop work and street corner peddling in New York City, you know, selling fruits. Didn't care for that too much, and then eventually uh, uh, Wolf's brother Moses uh, found himself in a town near Johnstown, Pennsylvania, western Pennsylvania, which was then a thriving steel and coal area. So the uh, the boys met up there, and uh, uh, they were able to. Uh, uh, Wolf was able to uh, get a, a horse and wagon and start to pedal, and then his oldest son, uh, back from uh, back from Huntsville, came over. Nathan Nathan got a job in a, uh, in a haberdashery owned by an earlier Jewish immigrant in town, uh, and eventually was able to uh, to buy that store. And Wolf Leib and uh, and Nathan. Uh, went to work in the store. That store eventually turned into a big business. And by 1906, it was still just a tiny enterprise. But 1906, they were able to bring over the rest of the immediate family. And these would be Stephen Miller's great grandfather and uh, uncle and great uncle. Got to go back a little further than that. Um, my father, uh, Izzy Glosser, uh, uh, is uh, Stephen's grandfather. My dad's father is Sam. Sam Glosser was the son of Wolf Leib. So Wolf Leib is my great-grandfather, so it would be Stephen's great-great-grandfather. Stephen is my maternal nephew. He's my sister's son. In the article, you specifically mention the travel ban, the radical decrease in refugees, the separation of children from their parents, and even talk of limiting citizenship for legal immigrants as areas that would have kept your family, Stephen Miller's family, out of the country. Do you believe Mr. Miller is aware of this fact and doesn't care, or is in some state of denial about the policies he's espousing and helping to create? Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not going to try to read his mind, but uh, I will tell you that it's pretty evident from from both his statements and the actions and statements of the Trump administration that the real interest of the Trump administration is to mobilize distrust, fear, and hatred of uh, people who are outside the country, particularly those people who, come, who are brown-skinned or people who are coming from so-called uh, whole countries, as our president so ineloquently expressed. I think the reason why they're really motivated to do this has nothing to do with security, has nothing to do with economics, it has everything to do with, with stirring up fear, dividing the country, and uh, using it as a campaign issue uh, to, stir up, uh, to stir up unrest and support among the fearful. Now, to uh, two educated men and those uh, uh, and those who are uh, also on this uh, on this team, could they be unaware of what they're doing? I think not. You initially wrote in a Facebook post before the election that you wish Stephen uh, quote career success and personal happiness. At what point in his tenure with the Trump administration did you feel like he crossed a line? Well, a couple of lines were crossed. One is uh, the first reason why I wrote that essay in October 2016 is because he made a, uh, a fevered uh, campaign speech for Mr. Trump in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, my hometown. Uh, Stephen had perhaps spent some time uh, in big, you know, uh, visiting uh, visiting the grandparents there a few times over the summer. He had no real knowledge of the town, never really spent any time there, didn't know any of the people there that weren't direct relatives. By which time most of our family had already left the town. 
And he portrayed his link to that town as though it represented an endorsement of the Glosser family for the candidacy of Donald Trump, which was complete nonsense and a complete lie and a complete repudiation of our family's sentiments. Our family is almost entirely composed, particularly the, the generation of my parents, almost entirely composed of Roosevelt Democrats. So having uh, having seen that, I felt, in, 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 the, in the balance of the campaign speech, and the appearance, I think, was laced with misconceptions and lies about uh, about why Johnstown declined, or why the Rust Belt declined. And this is, of course, where, Jonestown, Pennsylvania, where you grew up. Right. I grew up. I was born and raised there. The other reason why I decided to write this particular article, uh, why I decided to seek publication in a broader venue, was because of the uh, the, uh, the capture and incarceration of uh, more than 2,000 children. So these were legal asylum-seeking families. They weren't illegals, as it has been portrayed. They came to the border seeking asylum. And what uh, what was done in our name, what was done in the name of our country, which I resent tremendously, uh, was uh, was to take these children away from their parents without any apparent plan to reunite them. Had the United States or any other country done this as an act of war, if you were to invade another war, another country rather, kidnap 2,000 kids and separate them from their parents and put them someplace else, and their parents in other places not keep track would be widely condemned as a war crime. One of our, had one of our adversaries in World War II engaged in that activity, uh, they would certainly have appeared at the Nuremberg trials. But here this was done uh, for political purposes. Just an absolutely, an absolutely unconscionable act of uh, politically motivated cruelty. I felt that I did not have the uh, moral authority to keep my mouth shut any further. So I wrote the article. I'm speaking with Dr. David S. Glosser, a retired neuropsychologist and former member of the neurology faculty of Boston University School of Medicine and Jefferson Medical College, who wrote the August 13th Politico op-ed, Stephen Miller is an immigration hypocrite, I know because I'm his uncle, you're listening to Trump Watch, my name is Jesse Lent. As reported by Lisa Miller of the L.A. Times, your nephew, Stephen Miller, originally rose to prominence in a lot of conservative circles in the liberal bastion of Santa Monica, where he grew up, by contacting radio show host Larry Elder, the conservative commentator, becoming a regular guest and attacking the liberal bias he says he felt at his high school. You were clear in our pre-interview that you've only met Stephen 10 times in his life and haven't really spoken with him in the last five years, but did you know him in high school, or do you have any thoughts about what led to the formation of such conservative ideals in a place as liberal as Santa Monica, California? So I'm, not, uh, I'm not really willing to try to psychoanalyze uh, my nephew. I don't know him well enough, and I don't really believe in bloviating uh, about people's internal uh, Internal mental states. Uh, if, I, if I don't really know them, I haven't really talked to them or examined them. However, from his, so I'll just, I'm just going to remark from what, he's, what his persona is, what he's written, what he's said, and what he's done, and what anyone could surmise. Which is to say, as a, as a youngster, it's been, it's been said that he uh, was a very young kid. He got interested in the writings of Wayne Lapierre, that uh, a great philosopher of the NRA. <laughs> uh, the uh, and somehow. Uh, 
somehow he found himself the subject of a great deal of attention uh, uh, from uh, uh, from the right wing press. Uh, I'm sure it was a curiosity to them to find this this uh, little skinny Jewish kid uh, spouting off material uh, which is ordinarily associated with the right wing of American politics, which frankly has not been that friendly towards Jews or other minorities. And he appears to have made a career of it. Um, exactly why, I really couldn't tell you. You wrote in the same essay that I alluded to earlier that, quote, my nephew and I must both reflect long and hard on one awful truth. If in the early 20th century, the USA had built a wall against poor, desperate, ignorant immigrants of a different religion, like the Glossers, these are your relatives and Stephen Miller's relatives, the Glossers, all of us would have gone up the crematoria chimneys with the other six million kinsmen whom we can never know. Do you see a parallel between those fleeing government persecution and gang violence in South America and Jews who were fleeing the Holocaust back in the 30s and 40s? Look, uh, two points here. One is this is not idle speculation. Uh, in our uh, in our particular family, there were 74 members of our extended family who could who was elected not to come over for one reason or another and decided to stay in Belarus, or who were not able to. In the 19, late 1930s, when political, when political racism in the form of fascism and Nazism started to spread across Europe, the risk became more and more evident. And our family in the United States tried to bring them over. But in 1924, the American firsters of their day had succeeded in making exclusionary laws to prevent Italians, uh, Balkans, uh, Southern Europeans, and people from the Jews and people from the Russian Empire areas from coming over. So they were turned away. Uh, among that 74 of our family that got stuck in Antipole, not a single one survived. They were all murdered. The, uh, among the Jews in Antipole, there had been there had been as much many as 7,000 Jews in Antipole at one point at the peak of Jewish population there before my family left. Uh, by the time war broke out, there were only 2,000 left. The rest had uh, emigrated for the same reasons we did. Uh, but among those that stayed behind, the 2,000 that stayed behind, only seven survived. Uh, so this is not idle speculation about what could have happened or would have happened. So first, let's get that on the table. Uh, next, do I see a parallel? In my retirement, I've uh, been spending a lot of time working as a volunteer for a couple of agencies, primary among them is the highest ISO is an acronym for, for an organization that used to be called the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. They uh, they helped our family, in fact, get settled in the United States when we came over. And in my great-grandfather's will, they were number one on the list of bequeathments in his will, <laughs> out of pure gratitude. And I've also been working as a volunteer for uh, uh, Physicians for Human Rights and for the uh, University of Pennsylvania's Community Health Initiatives Program for uh, asylum seekers. And my job in that as a volunteer is to do the same thing I always did, which is doing cognitive, uh, neurological, neuropsychological evaluations of people. Uh, the, uh, but at this time, now I'm doing it for free for, for refugees, asylum seekers. I've met people from all over the world, from Africa, uh, from Yemen, from Saudi Arabia, uh, from, uh, and from Central America. People, people leave their country to try to emigrate for a number of reasons. And I think that needs to be talked about as well. 
Nobody just decides all of a sudden, you know what, I think I'm going to leave everything behind that I know. I'm going to leave areas where I'm going to go someplace where I don't speak the language. I don't have any idea what the culture is like. I'm going to leave behind my family. I'm going to leave behind my culture and leave behind my roots. I think I'm just going to go off and try to make a go of it someplace else. No one does that. People get two reasons why people leave a country. One is they feel pushed out, and the other is they feel pulled to someplace else. It's usually a combination of the push and the pull that motivates somebody to leave. So we see these folks from Central America uh, who, are, who, who are fleeing danger. What are the kinds of problems I see? Are the people from Africa like that? The fellow, uh, the fellow whom I give the, uh, the false name of Joseph to in my story. Uh, here's a fellow who was, uh, who was a schoolboy in Eritrea, 14 years old, and he was... Uh, and, and uh, one day he was taken out of school by the uh, by the army, and he was sent to a desert uh, desert training camp with a bunch of other fourteen year old boys in what was then the never ending uh, war with uh, with Ethiopia. And once there, he was uh, his, his family had given him a Bible to keep him company. He was a member of the Coptic Church, so but the authorities at the uh, the officers at the training camp uh, found this Bible under his under his bunk. And uh, they thought that it showed that he was a member of a uh, so-called Pentecostal Christian sect, which they felt was a disloyal sect. He was made an example of. He was publicly tortured. They bound his hands and feet behind his back, hung him upside down in what they called the helicopter position, and beat him senseless with rubber batons uh, and, uh, and uh, other tortures, which I won't, which I won't discuss your audience with. This, this proceeded for 21 days. And he was finally in a half-dead condition, thrown into a uh, crammed into a cell elsewhere with 36 other beaten, starved men and boys. And he barely escaped with his life. Uh, and he found his way into the United States. Well, it took him 10 years of wandering uh, stateless uh, throughout Africa and uh, other countries. So uh, why did he leave home? Well, he had no choice. Now, these people from Central America, where are they leaving home? A couple of months ago, I met a woman. Uh, she doesn't speak Spanish, doesn't speak English. Uh, she predominantly speaks uh, an, an indigenous uh, American language of Central America. I, I interviewed her through a translator. Uh, she lived in a town that barely has a name. Maybe there's one or two telephones in town, a bunch of their subsistence farmers, and all, all that she or anyone in her family has ever done is plant beans and corn and harvest them. Well, they're close to uh, they're close to the El Salvadoran border, and bandits started to come across the border from El Salvador, and uh, to steal and intimidate and to uh, to take what little money or food they could. Uh, if people, I ask her, uh, did you talk to the police? Uh, did you talk to the army? Well, there's no police. The army's corrupt. The government's ineffective. They may have used. They may have certainly been bought off by by criminal gangs. And uh, so her family made the decision they were going to send somebody out of the country to try to, to try to reach safety with her children, the, uh, the daughter. Uh, so she was uh, collected enough money, and then one night uh, her neighbor, she heard a gunshot, and the next morning she found her neighbor shot through the neck uh, pretty nearly her front porch. And it was enough to make her, make her decide it was time to go. And what's this poor, poor illiterate woman going to do? You know, uh, who's going to help her? You know, where can she go? What can she do? So she did what a lot of people have done. They look for safety. They want to save their lives. So she headed north. 
barely knowing what to do at all and with her child. So, yes, I've met people from these countries. and uh, We can't solve the problems of everybody in the world, but what the Trump administration has been doing is that they've been conflating this idea of, of, uh, of illegal immigration with asylum and refugee help. There are different kinds of immigrants. When I was working at Jefferson in my department of neurology, and my chairman was a man from Iran. Uh, the uh, uh, One of my colleagues is from Switzerland, another, another from China, another family is from Japan, etc. So I would say roughly half the department was composed of people who are absolutely devoted to the development of improved science and clinical skills to help Americans and have made their life here too. So that's a class of immigrants. But that's not what we're talking about now. What we're talking about now are refugees, asylum seekers, people who are escaping from war, from persecution, from famine, from natural catastrophes. We should, we can't help all of them, but the United States is a big country. We're a wealthy country, and we have tremendous expertise in absorbing immigrants and absorbing people from different cultures. That's what makes us a unique country. We should help these people to the extent, and at least in proportion to our ability to do so, in proportion to our size, in proportion to our wealth, in proportion to our population, in proportion to our expertise. There are a lot of good-hearted people in the United States who want to do this. But what the Trump administration has been doing has been eliminating the number of people uh, or the categories of persecution which make people eligible for asylum status and by dragging their feet. And by and the thing that pushed me over the edge on this issue was the capture of these children uh, with, with a nakedly political purpose. And these kids are going to be, these kids have been hurt. They won't, they'll never be the same again. Nor will their parents, frankly. But it, and, the, and the administration even finally admitted that it was uh, used as a deterrent, deterrent to prevent asylum seekers from seeking refuge in the United States. So nobody's talking about open borders or getting rid of... Uh, Getting rid of all of our laws about uh, about managing immigration, but this uh, but this administration has no interest in making reform to the immigration laws. Uh, they have interest in excluding people who someday may not be uh, Republican voters, excluding people that do not look like them. If you were to run into your nephew Stephen Miller today, is there anything you'd like to say to him? Well, I mean, from a personal advice point of view. Sure. I, yeah. Well, I, I'd tell him, uh, Stephen, I suggest uh, that you meet a nice woman and fall in love. <laughs> um, you know, my late first wife's family was all from Argentina, and uh, I just happened to I happened to fall in love. We got married and we raised children. I'd recommend that he give that a try, just to be able to hold a woman in your arms and tell her that you love her. Get married. Have children have the tremendous surge of joy and the urge to protect that comes from uh, coming home from work and having your toddlers run into your arms and welcome you. Most people are born with a, you know, a sense of a sense of human kindness, some more than others. And, but some people it needs to be cultivated. But uh, I don't know anyone who can, who can resist that urge to, to love and protect uh, when they have children of their own. I think that might be a good learning experience for my young nephew. Thank you so much. You're more than welcome.
I've been speaking with Dr. David S. Glosser, a retired neuropsychologist and former member of the neurology faculty of Boston University School of Medicine and Jefferson Medical College. Dr. Glosser wrote the August 13th Politico op-ed, Stephen Miller is an immigration hypocrite. I know because I'm his uncle. You're listening to Trump Watch on WBAI New York. My name is Jesse Lent. And that's going to do it for this week's show. I want to dedicate today's program to the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, who we lost last Thursday at the age of 76. I was fortunate enough to hear Aretha perform at a tiny ballroom at the Ritz about 10 years ago. She truly was the greatest. You can hear all 82 episodes of Trump Watch with Jesse Lent at soundcloud.com slash trumpwatchwbai or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter, and I'll be back next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. when we'll break down another aspect of the Donald Trump administration. Until then, I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Talk to you next time. Mm